Welcome to Season 2 of Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora. Together, we wanted to create a safe space where everyone can learn more about our diverse communities, the complicated relationships we have with our culture, and how they intersect with feminism, queerness, disability, anti-racism, career choices, politics, and more. I'm Ariadne Nila, a Filipino-American from a small town on the southern border of Texas. And I'm Sherilyn Lee, a.k.a. Lazu, a new American originally from the only place a dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. This podcast only spreads through word of mouth. And last year, you've made it among the top 10% of podcasts that were shared through Spotify. This made us so happy because it means that those conversations we're having and sharing with you are resonating. It makes all the work that goes into this worth it. So if this episode resonated with you today, I hope you will consider sharing it with a friend who will also enjoy it. Damam is the fifth most populous city in Saudi Arabia. PC is an abbreviation for politically correct. Sync refers to synchronizing music to another medium, such as a movie or a game. At some point, Judy mentions a Simon moment, and she's referring to Simon Cowell, who's made it his entire personality to insult artists on national singing contests under the guise of expertise. Judy Leah is a Los Angeles-based singer and songwriter creating cinematic dark pop that blends her ethereal, sultry vocals with a hybrid production of orchestral and electronic elements. Her unique sound can be described as Lana Del Rey meets Hans Zimmer in a dystopian film. She began learning piano at age 5 and wrote her first song at age 11 to process the gravity of surviving war. This experience often informs the haunting melodies and somber lyrics in her songs. She enjoys finding inspiration in film scores, and her favorite composers include Ramin Jawadi, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, Max Richter, and Pasek and Paul. Thanks so much for hanging with us, Judy. Yeah, hi everyone. So glad to be here. Why don't you tell us how you got into music, how it's been navigating the music industry as an AAPI person and your story? Yeah, my path is kind of unique, but also not because as a a Asian American kid, my parents did pretty much the typical thing that a lot of Asian American kids go through where you have to learn an instrument. And I started out on piano at the age of five and I really loved it. And I think by age seven, I was playing songs like Fur Elise and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. It just went from there. I had a really, really amazing piano teacher from five to 10. And I think that was part of the reason why I stuck with it. Partly just because I love my teacher and I love just being able to have a class with him every week. He really encouraged me in so many ways because the way that my parents approached me learning piano was a pretty strict. As a kid, I was not allowed to listen to any music except classical. I was one of those Mozart babies, basically, where <laughs> my parents felt like if I only listened to classical, it would just make me smarter or something like that. (laughs) So I don't think I was allowed or I kind of snuck into, right? Um, Listening to pop. I was 12 when I Mm -hmm. bought my first pop album. And I remember it clear as day. It was Mariah Carey's Music Box. That was my first pop album that I ever listened to that was mine. Rewinding a little bit, at the age of 10, I went through something traumatic in surviving war. So I, I lived in the Middle East during that time. And it was the Gulf War where we lived was close to Damam, which was a port city where a lot of the American troops would come in. So of course, Damam was a target. So I remember this one night, like, first of all, just being in the midst of a war and just knowing the reality of how dangerous it is. I remember going to school and having to bring my gas mask with me because biological warfare was one of the concerns during that time. 
And I remember almost every month we would have to run through an air raid drill and like what you needed to do. The sirens went on. You got to grab your gas mask, throw it on. All the students single file into some sort of a shelter. It was a crazy time. I can try to find, I'll look for the picture and uh, send it to you guys if I can find it. So fast forward to age 11, I started writing. I wrote my first song. And I still remember it clear as day. The song I wrote was uh, Perfect World. It was the title of the song. It was like a John Lennon, Imagine kind of song melody. And uh, that was my first foray into songwriting was just music therapy because I needed an outlet to process the experience I had been through. When I got to high school, I had this moment where I was at a crossroad in terms of what I wanted to do with music. I was this close to wanting to pursue a career as a concert pianist, but then I decided against it because the more I learned about it and the more I, I found out about touring and all this stuff, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't think I want to tour that hard. <laughs> and so I changed my mind. When I got to college, I was still writing and I was still pursuing music, but I studied English instead of music, which I don't know. Sometimes I look back and I wondered if I should have studied something else. But you know what? College is college. When I got out of college, I had an opportunity to be signed to a music label. And so that brought me to Taiwan to pursue music. And it was fun, but it was also challenging because I remember when I was first meeting with the music label, they really liked my demo. They said all these great things about what they wanted to do and love my music and all that. But once I signed to the label, it changed a bit because they, they started trying to fit me within a certain box. Oh, can you change your music to be a little more pop, a little more like sugar pop? Because that was what sold the best in Taiwan at the time. And it got to a point where I felt like I wasn't me anymore in terms of what I wrote and who I was as an artist. I think the terms for that contract was five or seven years. I don't remember. But two and a half years into it, I was just like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Like creative differences. I'm upset all the time, you know, and frustrated. Thankfully, I was able to get out of the contract. It's not always easy to do that. That experience left such a bad taste in my mouth that I actually walked away from music for some time. I mean, I pursued other things and worked full time, nine to five kind of stuff. And then recently, because of COVID, right, I had a lot of time because I wasn't going out and socializing all the time. I had downtime and my husband was like really encouraging me. You should take this time to write again, do something with music. And initially I was like, I don't know. It's been so long, but at least over a decade or so. I don't even know if I have music in me anymore and all this stuff. But he was really persistent. And then at one point I was like, okay, fine. I'll write something. But it was really amazing because once I sat down at the piano, yeah, for sure. There was a moment of silence where I was like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like just sitting at the piano and tinkering around. And then these melodies start forming. And then I started finding words coming out of me. And then next thing you know, I have some songs and I'm getting really excited about this. And I started thinking to myself, wow, I think I could do this again, but I'll do it differently this time. I really love right now in the internet era where it's so much easier to get your music out there and so much easier to find the resources you need to put a song together and get it distributed to streaming services like Spotify and Apple and all that. I've only been writing again maybe about a year ago. And it's been really cool. 
I think for me, I'm not really looking so much to be like the next Beyonce or anything like that. I think for me, what would make me so happy is just to get my music out there, grow a fan base and find people that just really enjoy my music and inspire me to continue writing. What's really funny is I discovered the sync space completely by accident. I was watching this TV show. I don't even remember what show it was, but in the opening sequence, there was a song that played. And you know how you Shazam stuff? And so I did. And then it started leading me down this rabbit hole where I was researching and discovering that sync is this whole industry that I had never heard about. And that got me really excited because it answered the question for me of how do I get past touring? Because I don't want to really tour so much as an artist, but I do want to get my music in front of people in a way that doesn't take me around the world touring for it. And Sync was the answer that I was looking for. So that really excited me so much about what I could do with music. Yeah. When it came to pursuing music, how was it with your family? Were they encouraging? It sounds like your husband was encouraging in that regard. But how was it pursuing a non-traditional career and navigating family expectations and things like that? I think it was definitely easier the second time around. I think originally out of college, when I first got signed to a label, my parents were incredibly against it. They're like, what are you doing with your life? You're going to be a starving artist. We're so embarrassed at family functions. We don't know what to say about you. And so emotionally, that was pretty hard. And I did experience some depression and anxiety for sure, because I was so afraid to fail and disappoint them after I fought so hard to go down that path. And then when I when it didn't work out, and I separated from my label. I definitely, the thing with Asian culture is there's so much this concept of like saving face and shame. That I think was the hardest thing for me. Not so much that it didn't work out, right? Because life happens and it doesn't always work out creatively and that was fine. I think it was having to face my parents and also my extended family in the fact that it felt like I failed, right? Yeah. And then having to like face them, right? Yeah. And it wasn't so much they were like, we told you so. It wasn't that. But there was like this silent understanding <laughs> that mm -hmm. everyone had kind of, oh, that is that which we shall not talk about <laughs> in the family. And so that, that was definitely a challenge. So after I walked away from music in my mid-20s, I just pursued the full-time nine-to-five jobs. And I didn't write for a long time until recently with COVID. I think in terms of family, it was much easier the second time around because I had already established the fact that I can take care of myself. I have a nine to five and don't worry financially. I'm not a starving artist and stuff like that. And so my approach is I've been doing music part time. It'd be great if I got to a point where I can do music full time. Once I see I'm starting to bring in the kind of income that can support that. But yeah, it was so much easier the second time around. And it's it's been surprisingly pleasant, actually. Every time I finish a song and I workshop it and show it to my parents, they've been so much more supportive. Th that surprised me, <laughs> to be honest. And they're actually supportive to the point where... You know, like when my first song for, came out on Spotify, like my mom was playing it on YouTube all the time, which at first was great. But then after the second week, I was like, mom, can we please just play something else in the car or wherever? Because <laughs> I love my song, but I don't know if I want to hear it all the time like this. Yeah. It's been really good. It's been so encouraging. Yeah, that's really cool. I definitely know what you mean about the saving face and the facing your family, especially like your extended family. There's a chismis culture in the Philippines where it gets around. And so I understand that pressure. You don't want to fail. Of course, you don't want to fail because you want to do this thing you want to do. But I think 
the fear of facing your family and that being what you're most afraid of. I totally get that. Yeah, more than the fact that it didn't work out with the label. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny that I was more afraid of my family's opinions than I was about the fact it didn't work out. It's almost like when you fail, your failure is everybody else's failure. Yeah, for sure. So you bring stigma to the whole family. <laughs> so that's a lot of pressure. It is. On the one hand, I love the fact in Asian culture, there's so much this sense of community and we are one, I guess, but it does make it so much harder to be an individual, right? And to do things differently. And especially if you're the only one in the family that is stepping out in a creative way and everyone else, right? It's like a doctor or a teacher or an engineer. And what are you doing? Yeah, it makes you feel like you're not pulling your weight in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But as you said, there's good things and bad things about this type of mentality. The good thing is whenever there's anything wrong, people always come together. I find it so interesting to watch how Americans handle family issues versus Asian families, it's very foreign to me. (laughs) There's good and bad in each one of those. And I think as Americanized Asians, we're torn in between the two a lot of times. Like you don't really know which one you like better. (laughs) Yeah, I do for sure. Even within the artist community, right? One of the reasons why I love talking among the three of us or just other Asian Americans who are within the creative space is that there's almost this unspoken experience that we don't really need to talk about because we all have felt it in terms of wanting to pursue something, but feeling like you're the only one within whatever environment you're in that brings this unique voice and experience. And it is cool in the sense that you're bringing a unique perspective, but it can feel lonely when you're the only one in the room that's talking about things that unless you're Asian doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Sherry and I were talking the other day, ever since 2020, there's a sense of you have to figure out which white people are safe and which aren't or are ignorant or not. The conversations about race brought up a lot of things. Sometimes when I talk about my experiences and I'm the only Asian person in a room that's mostly white people, I end up worrying. Are these people going to say, oh, look, she's pulling out the race card again. Oh, we don't want to hear about her experiences or something like that. It's like, I don't want to offend people, even though there's nothing to offend. Me talking about my experiences, that shouldn't offend other people. It's a lot of emotional labor. But when we're in a room with other Asian Americans, it's relaxing because I don't have to work. I can just be myself and my experiences are understood. Like I'm looked at as an individual, not as like the face of this community. I can just mention something and they get it. And you don't have to explain why something is important for you to talk about. I feel like that's such a struggle sometimes where you want to talk about something and before you can even do that, you have to justify why. (laughs) It's almost like you have to educate the other person first before you can actually talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. It's almost, okay, this is what it's like in my culture. X, Y, and Z. And then you start talking about the challenge that you're facing. Because without that context, they're kind of like, why is it a challenge? Let me tell you, here's the context. Yeah. And then... There, there are definitely nice and open-minded and supportive people out there. But I, it's that fact that you feel like you're carrying the weight mm-hmm. of... It's almost like people expect you to represent a whole group instead of just being an individual that's doing their own thing and has nothing to raise. And they expect you to have all the answers and to know everyone within that community. Oh, it's God. like, that's a pretty big community. <laughs> <laughs> there are billions of us. Like We don't all know each other. Sure. I remember I was watching the interviews of some of the actors from Crazy Rich Asia. They were talking about once they were done for the day, they could all go out and eat together 
and it was like everyone understood right like as far as like the places they would go to eat and the experience of food one of the actors was saying hey let's be adventurous and try out some different things but not too adventurous and uh, i think just even the concept of asians typically eat all the organs right like the whole animal as opposed to just the muscles right it's yeah. kind of like no intestines are pretty good too and some liver dishes are really amazing the tongue oh yeah or like chicken feet oh yeah chicken feet. i haven't had dim sum in forever i want to go yeah yeah i remember this one time i went out to dim sum with some people now i'm not a huge fan of fish eyeballs because i've never really gotten quite used to the texture of it but I had a friend, right, who absolutely loved fish eyeballs. And I just remember my Western friends being like, what did she just do? Because she just went straight for it. <laughs> I love this stuff. And she was just so excited. But yeah, oh. my Western friends were like, is this for real? Oh my God. I don't want to make a face, but I feel <laughs> shocked. One of my old companies that I worked at, we would go to Asia a lot. We worked a lot with offices in Asia. And I had this one manager I'm looking back and I'm like, a lot of it was not PC. I think at that point we had just accepted that's just her personality. She's crass. But we were in Taiwan and me and my friend who's based out of the Taiwan office, we would get food during lunch breaks and dinner and she would always make this face like, what are you guys eating? You eat weird shit. And we would just laugh it off because we were like, oh, that's her personality. But who is she to say what's weird? It sounds like she had a hard time adapting to her environment. Yeah, yeah. I think she did find a couple things she liked that were pretty safe. But whenever we would get a squid based dish or something, which isn't very out there, but she would act like it was the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> what is that thing you're eating? And I'm like, okay, is it not weird that Americans love to deep fry everything? Like, why, who are you? Calamari, hello. Also, eating bread with pasta like why i know you already have gluten from one thing and anything at the texas state fair that shit's weird deep fried sticks of butter deep fried snickers some of it's yeah you know what i would try some of the deep fried stuff but i'm not gonna pretend that's a normal thing i think deep fried snickers would give me a heart attack yeah it sounds like it's terrible for you when i say i enjoy asian desserts better it's not even because of race it's just because when i eat it i just feel more comfortable because sometimes when i eat western desserts just because of the amount of sugar they put in. I feel like I'm having diabetes with every bite. But Asian desserts, you can taste all the flavors instead of just straight up sugar. Yeah, I agree. I don't buy any desserts because of that because usually the main ingredient is sugar and then there's everything else. There's even more sugar than flour in most of their cakes. Yeah, was there supposed to be chocolate in this? I can't even taste the chocolate. Yeah, I never realized that, but I think you're right. The Asian desserts are at least a little better. <laughs> They're more balanced in terms of the flavor profile. Yeah. As far as the Asian American experience versus the Asian experience, you and I have had this conversation before in our co-writes where when I go to Asia, I feel like I don't fit in. But when I'm here, I also feel like I don't fit in. So it's this weird in-between space. Do you want to talk about how the Asian American experience or growing up in a diaspora community is different? It's definitely interesting being Asian American. Like you said, you don't exactly feel like you fit in within mm -hmm. one or the other. And on the one hand, there's so much opportunity in terms of having a voice, but sometimes it does feel really lonely because there are not that many out there that walk this path. And I think it's figuring out on your journey who you want to be as a person. And for me, I understand the fact that I'm Asian American in terms of how I approach things creatively and as a singer songwriter, but I don't want to be boxed in and known as just Asian American. When they hear my music, I want people to hear the music, yeah. right? Not my race, yeah. not my ethnicity, 
right? Not my background. Maybe background because it does inform the music that I write. But a lot of the songs I write, they tend to be more story-based. And a lot of these stories and emotions that I write about are actually not always mine. Because what inspires me a lot when I'm writing is it could be a book that I'm reading or a movie that I've watched or a TV show and some scene or scenario comes up and emotions and experiences. There's a lot of universal experiences, whether it's love or betrayal. That's the way I approach the music. The first thing I think about is not always I'm Asian American and I have to write strictly from the Asian American lens. My approach a lot of times is what is the common ground? What are the experiences that I can write about that people can connect with? And it comes down to stories. We're all storytellers as creatives. I think what makes creatives so unique and beautiful is the fact that we can capture these experiences and put them into words. Because that's really hard if you don't come from that creative perspective. You may feel or experience things, but you may not always have the words to say it. That's why you see things like at weddings, where here's my favorite wedding song, because it really brings out the emotions that I feel in this union or in this marriage and relationship. It makes me so excited that I can do that for people, that I can put into words the experiences that they feel. What inspires me the most is just the creativity that's around me when I watch a movie or I watch a TV show and I'm like, oh, I really love this story. How can I put that experience into words so that people have this way of communicating their experience? So yeah, that's my approach to the creative and musical side of uh, being an artist. That's really cool. I love what you said about I want people to hear the music first before my ethnicity. And it's interesting because Sherry and I have also talked about this before where because of our background, people expect us to have a specific sound. They're like, oh, do you make K-pop? Do you make anime music? Do you make, or if you're Filipino, do you sing like Sarah Heronimo? Do you do stuff like that? So I'm curious if you've had to navigate the same assumptions about the type of music you make because of your ethnicity. Oh yeah, definitely for sure. Sometimes there have been experiences that are a little bit, I don't want to say off-putting, but it can definitely feel a little bit awkward. One example is that I remember I was showcasing a song among these different agents. And then one of the agents, her feedback was, I feel like you have an accent when you sing. And I don't think it would work very well in this space. And, you know, I'm just giving you advice because it's a really competitive space. And if you really want to stand out, you have to have a certain sound right? And the way that you pronounce or form the word. Definitely in this industry, you need to have thick skin because people will say all sorts of things. And I've learned that a lot of times it actually has nothing to do with me. It has more to do with their own frame of reference or their own experiences. And I've learned to take the feedback and the input with a grain of salt. Okay. If this is something that helps me grow, I receive it right? But if it's just your opinion, I'll say thank you and walk on. That's definitely one of the ways I've learned to navigate this space. Yeah. Because otherwise you'd just be upset all the time and frustrated and, you know, and feel offended. And I don't want to live like that. Music brings me so much joy that I don't think that I would want to let anyone take that away from me. Yeah. That's a great way to approach it. It's very weird because I can't really hear an accent on you, so I don't know what this is. I was confused too. I don't exactly know where you're coming from with that. And sometimes I have to remind myself just to give people the benefit of the doubt because there can be moments where you're like, where exactly are you coming from with that comment? Because I could go down this path, but it doesn't feel so good. 
right? But I have to remind myself, okay, maybe this person may not always know how to communicate what they're thinking in a way that doesn't sound awkward and weird. Does it ever get exhausting being the bigger person and giving people the benefit of the doubt? Because I agree that is the way to handle things. You can't take on the ignorance of someone else and you can't hold that inside your body. Does it ever get tiring to be like, oh gosh, I have to let this go again? Sometimes it's just easier for someone to not be ignorant. So I'm curious, does it get exhausting and how do you deal with that? What has worked for me is finding a balance. And that balance for me comes from, I care a lot about building a community of artists around me that inspire me, that make me feel this is a safe space and this is my sanctuary as a creative. And then from that, when I step out into the industry, I have to remind myself that this is a very cutthroat and ruthless industry. It is what it is. And so if I were to expect other people to make me feel that I'm worthy or have value or have a voice, I'd be frustrated all the time. And I feel like that confidence, it's so much more productive when it comes from within yourself that you know who you are, you know what you have to offer and people are going to have their opinions. And you know what? That's just an opinion. It's like an asshole. Everyone has one. And so I sometimes I remind myself if there's someone that says something that's just awkward or offensive or whatever, I'm like, this is just a Simon moment. This person is just a Simon, whatever. And I just walk away from that. But if there is a feedback, I'm always, I want to keep my mind open. Mm-hmm. Because I know sometimes there are some feedback that you get where it doesn't always feel so good, but you know that this is something you need to hear. And mm-hmm. I definitely want to take that in because I want to grow as an artist. And I think the real growth there is just learning to discern and then navigate this complex maze of people and their opinions and stuff. I had this conversation with someone the other day where it was like, this is an industry of personalities. You're not always going to see eye to eye with everybody Mm -hmm. and you're not always going to look like everybody. So it's better to approach it from the perspective of, hey, you want to just find your people. You go out there, just find your people. For sure. Yeah, I really like what you said about the confidence coming from within because that's so important not just in the music industry, but in life in general. I feel like so many people, when they talk about self-improvement, it comes from a place of lacking where it's, I will look at myself as worthy once I hit this specific goal, once I'm making this amount of money, or I hit this weight goal or whatever. There's nothing wrong with self-improvement, but I feel like if it comes from a place where you won't value yourself until you get there, it's a recipe for, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes it exhausting when you're trying to meet some expectation or standard that is not a good fit for you. Do you. Don't do other people. Do you. Who are you? And sometimes it takes trial and error and it's a journey and a process to figure that out. Like even the way that I write music in the last two decades, it's changed so much, you know, as I've grown as a person. Like when I first started out, I was writing something more like a John Lennon-esque kind of sound. And then Mm -hmm. I evolved into a more Sarah McLaughlin, Tori Amos, piano-driven sound. And then later on, as I started learning more about production and different sounds and all that, it evolved to what I'm doing now, which is this cinematic indie pop sound. Mm -hmm. And definitely I want to keep in mind the business side of music and understand that if I want to 
make a living off of music, I have to take those things into consideration. But at the same time, in order to sustain that, it has to be something I'm passionate about, right? It has to be something that I feel like I can do for a long time. Otherwise, there are people I know, they chase viral moments, right? What we see on social media, that they're chasing that viral moment instead of looking for opportunities that they resonate with that they can really invest in as opposed to chasing what's out there and the trends because that isn't sustainable as an artist. Yeah, I realized that branding is a thing, but I think it can be taken too far where you're curating this type of personality. I feel like the best way to sustain that is just being authentic and yeah, doing you. I think that comes with age though. Yeah, it does. I'm assuming all three of us are in our 30s. Yeah. We're at this point in life where we're over the other opinions and we know we are. It's important to get feedback and to grow. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the subjective side of things and you have to figure out which one is which. But it is a lot easier, I think, to do that when you're in your 30s. And I'm really glad that I did not jump into the industry as young as I wanted to, because I think it would have been a lot more overwhelming. I agree. Yeah, I think I wouldn't have been able to assert boundaries if I had gone into this when I was in my 20s. Yeah, it got to a point where I actually stopped enjoying music because I didn't feel like it was me anymore and again i'm not saying don't take into consideration the business side of it for sure you know you definitely have to make sure that your songs are songs that resonate with people unless you don't care about how many fans you have but if you want to make a living off of music it has to be something that enough people resonate with doesn't mean you have to completely change yourself and who you are but you do need to understand that it comes down to music that resonates yeah for sure Yeah, it's a nuance between making some compromise to adapt what you already are doing to resonate with more people versus changing everything about you just to fit the market, right? And I think as you get older, that gets a lot easier because you know who you are and what you like. Yeah, it's so liberating. Yeah, yeah. There's a beauty too that when you get into a place where you're much more confident or you're much more aware of who you are, that it does have an impact on the music and the creativity. Because instead of trying to be like everyone else, you start developing your own process, your own way of approaching creativity. I think that's actually what happened with how I came up with my artist name and even the sound that I wanted. Because as I was listening to some really unique artists who took different paths, it got me thinking about, okay, if I was going to do music and it was really true to me, what would that be? And I think in that process, I started understanding that because of this classical background that I come from, I realized that at one point I was rejecting it. Oh, it's not as popular unless you're really a classical artist, right? Who'd be interested in classically inspired music? But when I got to that place where I started accepting who I was and accepting the experiences I had and how that would influence my songwriting and influence my sound, I found a space that brought me a lot of joy because I felt so much more integrated in terms of who I was. I was accepting all the different parts of who I was. And then I got to a place I started writing within that style and I just loved it. It brought me to life as an artist right? I wasn't trying to fit myself into a box. I was creating my own box, right? Building my own box, my own space, my castle, so to speak. And it's been pretty liberating to do that. And then in the process, realizing, oh, there are people out there that actually like this sound. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Self-acceptance is huge. I think there's value in not just accepting, but also loving the parts of yourself that you thought were flaws before. I think that's huge. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't really have a problem these days telling people I was a Mozart baby. <laughs> before, as a kid, I felt so awkward. Can you imagine going to school with all the other elementary kids? And you're kind of like, oh, I don't know who that artist is. And everyone's what? What's wrong with you? How could you not know? Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that you picked an artist's name. What made you pick an artist's name as opposed to just using your name? It was more of a business decision as opposed to an artistic one. Originally, I wanted to use Judy Lee because that is my given name, right? Or that is my real name. But then I found online that Judy Lee was already taken. And I knew just from a royalty perspective that if you have an artist's name that other artists have, on the admin side of royalties, there tends to be a lot of mistakes or the risk of mistakes being made and your royalties going to the wrong artist and there's nothing you can do about it at that point. Like you can't get it back. And I decided that I wanted to have a unique artist name that no one else had. I wanted to keep Judy just because that's my name. But then as far as the last name, I was like, okay, let me find something that I can be happy with. And I actually done a survey among my friends. I was like, here are all the different alternatives to uh-huh. Lee. And the way I approached it actually was, okay, I know I definitely want to keep the L in my name. <laughs> And I put together a list of all these other options based on letters from my full name. I put together, I think, five options using different letters from my full legal name. And then I sent it out in a survey. I was like, hey, friends, which name do you like best? And then it came back as Leah. Everyone loved Leah. I think a lot of people really like the reference to Princess Leah. And I was like, I wasn't thinking that, but hey, I'll take that. That's great. There are a couple of Star Wars fans in there. (laughs) That's how Judy Leah was born and it was a name that I could get behind I really loved it it kind of reminds me of the artist Natalie Portman right Portman isn't her real name like it's Hirschlag I think yeah like it's it's a very difficult to pronounce name and so she wanted something that was much more accessible for people but also different from her real name that was one of the ideas too that guided that process of coming up with an artist name it's funny I remember that survey I think we were coming up with our artist names around the same time because we were both talking to each other about it I remember because you were kind of like oh I don't know if I want to use Ariadne Aberin for x y z reasons (laughs) and then when you settled on Mila and I was just it's so pretty I like it because I was thinking people are already gonna get over that hump of the first name and then Mila was so accessible no one would have a problem with Mila so then it was just a really great artist name I think for that reason thanks it's funny too because I used to release songs under just my first name and I would always get songs sent to the wrong profiles and I was like, I want to avoid that. I remember Googling... I made a list of names that were within my family or not just random ones, something that still had a connection to me. I made a list of names. I had done Raquel because I have an aunt named Raquel. And I Googled all of those names, Ariadne, with each of those. If there was an Instagram profile with that exact name, I was like, okay, nope. I wanted it to be like if they Googled me that I would come up. And so it was a mix of, you know, there was some artistry involved in it, but it was a business decision too. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because I've been toying with the idea of getting a different artist name. I don't know. I always felt uncomfortable with my name because I feel like I don't look like it. What's your artist name? I'm just using my name right now, Sherry Lynn Lee, but I don't... I think you look like a Sherry. I don't know. 
Mary Lynn should be like a blonde white lady <laughs> who plays country music or something. <laughs> and there is a country artist named Sherry Lynn. Oh my God. I had no idea. And there is a visual artist named Sherry Lynn Lee. I don't know if she's Asianly or whitely, but in terms of music, I don't have any problems with STO. I would come up first. The other artist, she's not very active. She has this one painting that was a hit, but then, you know, nothing else. Mm-hmm. So in terms of SEO, I don't have a problem. I just don't know if I like the brand. <laughs> would you want something that's a variation of your real name or a completely different Matthew Marshall is like Eminem, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to find something that I feel like I connect with that I could get behind for a long time, but I haven't really found one. And I'm also a very practical person. So I feel like getting a new name would just be a hassle. I'm torn between just keeping my name, but then I feel like the music that I want to make doesn't match the name or getting a new name, but then I can't figure out what I want to use. Yeah, yeah. I think an artist's name is really important. Some people want to go with their real name, say a Taylor Swift, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like the name Taylor Swift it really fits a certain brand. It's one of those names that really stands out in a way that, that is really cool. But there are other names that maybe are a little bit harder in terms of accessibility. And I do think that does have an impact as far as people being able to Google you and find you and all that. And that was actually something I took into consideration, too, in terms of my artist name. At the end of the day, it's got to be something that you feel very strongly about and you feel confident about. I think is really what it comes down to. Is it a good brand? But also, is this one that you can stand behind? Because yeah. you're going to be using that for a long time. <laughs> that's been the main thing that's held me back because I've found a few ones that I'm like, oh, maybe, but I'm just not sure I'm willing to commit for another, I don't know, decade or two. <laughs> Sherry Lynn is English, but people can't spell. <laughs> Even when I've emailed people and I have my name in the signature, they somehow misspell it back when they reply to me. Oh, man. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I get Sherry with a C. Sherry? I, I get Sherry. <laughs> oh my God. I can understand typos happen, but I always get frustrated when my name is in my email signature. My name is my email address, but they still spell it Adrian, which is not even the same name, but it's right there. Why don't you just follow the letters yeah. that are there? Yeah. You know what's really yeah. funny? I think Leah, as far as Judy Leah, is pretty straightforward, especially if you're like a Star Wars fan, right? Like Princess Leah, it's spelled mm-hmm. that way. But Actually, some people have a problem with it. I'm like, is this me? Me? And so what I've started doing is if you look at my website in my bio section, I have after my artist name, parentheses, pronounced as, and I spell it out for people because you know what? I'm pretty sure for people, if they don't know how to pronounce it, it's also stressful for them. Because they're like, I don't want to offend. And I'm like, I'll make it easy for you. Yeah, that's actually a good idea. I should do that. Fun fact, I did actually find an artist name that I like. For a little context, most of the interviews for season one and season two were recorded in the first half of 2022, and at the time, I was struggling to find an artist name. Since then, I have settled on an artist name, and it's Lazou, L-A-Z-O-U. The reason I picked this name is because in Mauritian Creole, Lazou means cheeks. I was a kid that had big cheeks. Everybody liked to pinch my cheeks, including my friends. Some of my friends even called me Lazou or Gros Lazou, which means big cheeks. So when I finally stumbled on that name, it felt familiar to me. It felt like it was me all along and it felt like something I could live with for a long time. 
It's also very easy to spell. So it fit the bill and I'm quite happy with it. So we've got rapid fire questions. These are just one word, one sentence. You don't have to explain. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Okay. Okay. The first one is, what was the first language you learned? Chinese. Okay. What language do you speak with your parents? English. Taglish. <laughs> what kind of art do people expect you to make versus what you actually make? I guess they would expect me to make pop. I like maybe pop. Yeah. Yeah. And what is the most annoying stereotype you've had to deal with? When people say my English is so good. Oh, gosh. Yeah. We know the feeling. What's an Asian food that you should like but don't? Fish eyeballs. <laughs> I just can't get past texture. All right. What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Pork belly. I love pork belly. Cool. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you, how they can keep up with your music? Yes. My next single is called The Darkest Secret. And it's the story about this character who is coming to the end of his life, but his past is really dark and bloody and he's done some pretty bad things. And I've kept it pretty open-ended. So you can draw whatever conclusion you want as far as his story. But yeah, I'm excited and I can't wait for, uh, for people to hear it. Yeah, we're excited too. Do you have Instagram as well? Yeah, yeah. So you can find my website. It's judylea.com. So J-U-D-Y-L-E-I-A.com. You can also follow me on Instagram. But if you really want to actually get more into the details of what I'm up to, please join my newsletter. That's where you'll get more information. I'd love to share my music more with people that are out there. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, in Asian cultures, once success brings pride to the entire community, but once failure also brings shame to the entire community. So there is pressure to perform and pressure to conform. We often fear this shame more than we fear failure itself. Number two, if a cultural food isn't for you, you can respectfully decline without being judgmental of people who enjoy it. Number three, age brings self-awareness, which itself brings out more authentic art. All three of us feel that we are creating our best, most authentic music now that we are in our 30s. Number four, self-love and acceptance help us distinguish between useful feedback and opinions that are well-meaning but not relevant to our artistic vision. Number five, People giving feedback aren't always good at articulating their thoughts. Sometimes we have to give them the benefit of the doubt or ask clarifying questions. And sometimes we just have to take it with a grain of salt. Number six, there's a difference between tweaking your art to reach more people and creating your artistic identity around viral trends. The latter is not sustainable. And finally, if you have a less common name, it might be a good idea to tell people how to pronounce it on your website. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week for another Nuanced Conversation. Conversation.